This is our part three in the book of Romans. We'll hopefully get through the first seven verses. Uh, 16 chapters, so it may take a while. Um, probably have two more weeks after this week in chapter one, so we should move along quicker uh, as we go through some of this. But uh, we'll get through verses two through seven. So last week we looked at just uh, verse one, where we looked at uh, Paul as a servant of Jesus Christ, his, uh, his heart's motive there, his authority, he's called to be an apostle, so he's an apostle called by Jesus Christ, that's where he gets his authority from, and he separated into the gospel of God, that's his mission. So he had his heart's motive, his authority, and his mission. And of course, we looked at that separated into the gospel of God, that word separated is there for a reason, he was separated from the twelve, he had a different ministry than the twelve. And going down through verses 2 through 7, this is the rest of his introduction to uh, Rome, those in Rome. It's his longest introduction of any of his epistles that he writes because he had never been to Rome. And we covered that last week as well to give some of the context. He's writing this book to establish them, which is why so many people go to Romans and talk about it as a foundational book for the believer. It's Paul's foundation. Uh, it's what he starts preaching when he goes to these places. Like you think about Corinthians, Thessalonians, we looked at verses where he said, when I was with you, or when I wrote to you the first time. He had already established those churches that he was writing to. Um, but this epistle is different. He had never been there. So he's writing to establish them, as he says in verse 11. But uh, Romans 1, 2 through 7, we'll read the verses and then we'll go through them. It says, we'll start at verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So verse 2, it says, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So he says, separate into the gospel of God, and then you have these parentheses, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So some people will take this verse and say, Paul's message is in prophecy. You know, y'all feel that talk about Paul preaches a, a mystery. It says right here, the gospel, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So people will attack what I teach about Paul having a special ministry, the mystery being revealed first to Paul, and they'll say it says here, it looks like it was promised afore by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Well, the question is, what was promised? It's not the mystery of Christ. Romans 16.25 clearly states, um, Now to him that has a power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. It can't be a foreprophesied in the prophets and be kept secret since the world began. They cannot uh, both go together. Those are two totally different things. Ephesians 3, 5. Again, these are verses that we've covered a lot, but they are important verses to get this point. He talks about the dispensation of the grace of God in verse 2, which is given to me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. So it made the mystery known to Paul which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So he says it wasn't known in other ages. So it can't be prophesied, it can't be in the prophets and not be known in those ages at the same time, right? It can't be both. It can't be known and prophesied and then Paul saying it's not known. So verse 2 of Romans 1 is not talking about the mystery that Paul preached. And we'll get into what it's talking about. Uh, you also look at 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he says, If they had known this mystery that Paul is preaching, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
Well, if it's in prophecy, they would have known it, right? So the mystery, what Paul preaches, the mystery that he was given, cannot be what he's talking about in Romans 1, 2, okay? But as you continue to read, it says in verse 9 here, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And he's quoting Isaiah um, 64 here. I believe it's Isaiah 64, 4. Isaiah says, For since the beginning of the world men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, neither had the eye seen a God beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waited for him. So that's the verse that Paul's quoting. So he says that uh, I have not seen or ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. So Isaiah is saying, Men don't know the things God has prepared for them. Paul's saying, but God has revealed them to us now by his spirit. There was things in the Old Testament that were not known. The mystery was not known in the Old Testament. It's now revealed by the spirit to Paul and those after. So going back to Romans uh, 1 verse 2, I just want to make it clear. Those are clear verses that says the mystery was kept secret. Right? What Paul preached was kept secret. It was not known in prophecy. So what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. That is what was promised and is what Paul preached, right? That's the gospel he preached. Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried and resurrected. That is in prophecy, okay? But there's a mystery aspect to that that was not prophesied. Um, but you look at some of the uh, prophecies. Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Paul says he's separated into the gospel of God in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. So Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. This is the gospel that I preached unto you, the good news that he preached to them. In Acts 26, verse 6 through 8, in his defense, when he's on trial before King Agrippa, he says, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? So he's saying here, I'm being accused of the Jews for the hope that was promised to the fathers. Resurrection. Right? That's what Paul preached. He preaches Christ and his resurrection. And that's what he's saying here to King Agrippa. This is what I'm being accused of for preaching what was promised to the fathers. Resurrection. Right? A kingdom that they would have because of resurrection. That's the only way they could have the kingdom. Right? would be because they would be resurrected. So he says, that's why I'm being judged of the Jews. In Genesis 3.15, it says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is a prophecy of Christ being born of the woman's seed. It says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Not man's seed, but woman's seed. That's a prophecy of Christ being born of a virgin. In Psalm 16.10. It says, For thou wilt not leave, leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. And in my Bible, the Holy One is capitalized because it's a prophecy of Christ. He will not be left in hell. He will not see corruption. He will resurrect. In Acts 2, 25 through 32, this is what Peter quotes. He quotes David and explains that David's dead, but he was speaking of Jesus. Jesus is not dead. He is resurrected. Acts 2, 25 through 32, he says, For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. 
Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh to see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. So that's the resurrection of Christ. It's prophesied and David prophesied about it. Right? I will not suffer my holy one to see corruption. Peter here explaining that was a prophecy of Christ. Christ has resurrected. Um, Psalms 22, 1 through 8 is another prophecy about Christ on the cross, where you see phrases like, forsake me not, or why is thou forsaken me? Some of the phrases that Jesus says on the cross, you see uh, Psalms 22 saying. And then, of course, Isaiah 53 prophesies Christ's death on the cross. So Christ's death and resurrection was prophesied. And that's the gospel Paul preaches. Now, there's more that Paul preaches about that that was not prophesied. That's the message, Christ's death and resurrection. It's according to the scriptures. Again, we've talked about the mystery. It's nothing that was just out of thin air that would have made Paul a heretic. It had to be builded upon the scriptures. Right? His, his message is of the Christ of the scriptures. It's not some Christ that came out of some planet way over here and he's a new Christ. Right? It's the Christ of the scriptures. And that's why Paul's writing to the Romans, who he's never been before, telling them, the gospel that I preach is about the Christ of the scriptures that was prophesied, right? The Christ that was prophesied aforetime in the prophets. And that's what he's saying there in Romans 1 verse 2. Um, Jesus Christ, the kingdom, salvation, right? These were all promised. These were promised things. They were promised to Israel, but promised nonetheless. If you look at Luke 1, 69 through 72, this is Zechariah speaking. He says in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and have raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have began since the world, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So here Zechariah is speaking about things that have been spoken since the world began by the holy prophets which again can't be the same thing as something kept secret since the world began. Okay, Things spoken and things kept secret are two different things. But notice you have redemption here, salvation, uh, mercy, uh, covenant to his people. Sounds like salvation, some of the things we would talk about salvation. Right? There was a salvation promised to Israel that Christ would redeem them and give them a kingdom. He would forgive their sins. Okay, These things were promised in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 23, 6. Another place where you see salvation being promised. It says, In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Don't we say Jesus Christ is our righteousness? So again, it's similar there, but here it's talking about Judah and Israel. And it will be in Judah the name, the Lord our righteousness. Okay, you don't see nothing here about Gentiles, right? Nah, again, it has to do with the mystery. This is speaking about Judah and Israel and their kingdom. But again, it's a salvation that was promised. It's in the Old Testament. John 5, 38 through 39, Jesus in his earthly ministry. He says, And you have not this word abiding in you, for whom you have sent, for whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. He says, you think you have uh, eternal life, but search the scriptures, that eternal life is in me, in Christ. And you don't even believe me, is what he's saying here to the Pharisees. Eternal life is in Christ, and you can find that in the scriptures, in the Old Testament. Okay? Second uh, Timothy one one. Paul here says something similar. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Eternal life, the promise of life, can only be found in Christ Jesus. 
And you can find that promise of life in the Old Testament. Okay, but yet it's not the mystery. It's not the mystery of the gospel. Okay, salvation was prophesied. Christ's death and resurrection was prophesied. But the mystery of the gospel was not. And that is salvation offered freely to all men apart from any works, from any covenants. Okay, that is not found in the Old Testament. And that's the mystery of the gospel that Paul preached. That you can be justified freely by faith in Christ and his death and resurrection, regardless of who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised. Okay? You can be saved, justified freely. Uh, Romans 3.24 says this. He says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You won't find that in the Old Testament. You'll find justification, but not justification freely by his grace. Ephesians 3, 6 through 8. says that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Jesus said in John 5, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they speak of me. So he tells the Pharisees, search the scriptures. Paul here says he's preaching among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So you can't search for them in the scriptures because they're unsearchable, because it was part of the mystery that Gentiles could be fellow heirs of the same body, that they would have a position in heavenly places. Okay, this is not in prophecy. You will not find that in the scriptures when you search them. It's only in Paul in his ministry because it was part of the mystery there. And then Ephesians six nineteen. Paul here is asking the Ephesians to pray for him. He says, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So there was a mystery of the gospel. Christ's death, his resurrection, it was prophesied. That's the gospel Paul preached. But there's a mystery of that that he also preached, that men could be justified freely by grace. So that's what Paul's saying there in Romans 1, verse 2. He separated into this gospel that's of Christ that was prophesied, uh, that was promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scripture, right? Eternal life in Christ that was in uh, prophecy. But uh, going on in verse 3 here, this gospel concerning his son, Jesus Christ, right? He's preaching the Jesus Christ of the Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul's gospel concerns the Jesus Christ, the Christ of the Scriptures, it says, made of the seed of David according to the flesh. Uh, so made of the seed of David as was prophesied in 2 Samuel 7. Promised to David that his seed would reign on the throne forever. In 2 Samuel 7, 8, it says, Now therefore so shalt thou say unto my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took thee from a sheep coat, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people over Israel. So David was a shepherd. And God here is saying, tell David, you know, I took you from that and put you as king over Israel. And if you drop down to verse 12 through 13, it says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So he says, Your seed, I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever, right? He'll reign forever in the kingdom, on the throne. And again, that's a prophecy of Christ. And that Christ would come through the lineage of David. Also in Jeremiah 23, 5. Another place. It says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute, execute judgment and justice in the earth. This says, I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. 
that righteous branch is Christ. And we see this, uh, how that Christ came from David's lineage. In Matthew 1, we're not going to read all the names, but it starts at Abraham and goes through to get to Joseph. And so Joseph would have been Jesus' legal father. Now, of course, Jesus was born of a virgin, but his legal father would have been Joseph as he was a spouse to Mary. So Joseph was his earthly dad, and Joseph was of David. But not only that, Mary was also through David's line. Because ultimately, for Christ to be of the seed of David, Mary would have had to been because, of course, he had none of Joseph's seed in him because he was born of a virgin. But if you go to Luke 3, so Matthew 1 gives you Joseph and how his lineage came from David. If you go to Luke 3, it gives you Mary's lineage, her genealogy, and how she comes through David. And here it goes from Jesus all the way to Adam. So in Matthews, it starts at Abraham. In uh, Luke 3, it goes uh, from Adam to Jesus. And actually, it goes backwards. In 23, it starts with Jesus. It says, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli. Well, in genealogies back in these days, they never put the woman in there. So Heli is Mary's father which would have been Joseph's father-in-law, his legal father through marriage. So here it says Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Mathat, which was the son of Levi. In Matthew 1, it says that Jacob begot Joseph. So you see in Luke 3, it says Heli is Joseph's father. In Matthew 1, verse 16, it says Jacob is Joseph's father. So that's why Joseph, Heli was actually Mary's father, but they don't give the woman in the genealogies. Okay, it was, Heli was Joseph's father-in-law, so that makes sense. But it's two different lineages, and when you read it out, you see how the names are different throughout those lineages. There's a few that are the same as you go all the way down, but a lot of them are different because it's speaking of Joseph's and Mary's. So even though here it says Joseph's father, Joseph, which was the son of Heli, it's not given Joseph's lineage. It just says Joseph because he was Mary's husband. Okay. But uh, Jesus was born of the seed of David, and again, you see that through both these genealogies. Both through Joseph's line and through Mary's line, he came from the seed of David. Uh, Matthew twenty-two forty-two, In verse 41, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. So the scriptures say that Christ would be the son of David, and the Pharisees knew their scriptures. They knew that uh, Christ would be born of the seed of David. And of course, Jesus, again, his genealogy proved that. They were just blind to see it. So you have made of the seed of David. It was prophesied. You can see it and study it as you study the lineages, how that played out, how Jesus came uh, from David. Then you have according to the flesh back in Romans 1 verse 2, it says he was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. According to the flesh, this is speaking of being born flesh. It speaks to his earthly ministry, right, to his human nature. He's God in the flesh. So he's David's seed according to the flesh, right? He's God in the spirit, right? But according to the flesh, he's David's seed. In Galatians 4 4, It says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made unto the law. So according to the flesh, made of a woman, it's born flesh, right? Born of woman. 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So it says God was manifest in the flesh. That's speaking of Jesus Christ. Right? He's God in the flesh. <clears throat> Romans 8.3 It says, For what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. So it says, in likeness of sinful flesh. 
Not that he was sinful flesh, but he had the likeness of it. He could experience the pain that we felt in this fleshly body, the temptations. Right? He was tempted in the wilderness, but yet without sin. He overcame it. He was God. He was perfect. He was sinless. So he had that likeness, but yet without sin, and so therefore he condemned sin in the flesh, being sinless. That's what Romans 8, 3 says. There you have that likeness of the flesh. So here where it talks about him being the seed of David according to the flesh, it's speaking of his human nature, how he was born in the flesh. And that speaks to his earthly ministry. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, in Romans 15, 8, it says Christ was a minister of the circumcision. His earthly ministry, his ministry in the flesh, was to the Jews. It was to Israel. To confirm the promises made unto the fathers, it says in Romans 15, 8. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. We do not follow Christ and his ministry according to his flesh. Okay, we follow his ministry according to his spirit. He's ascended. He's in heaven. And when he appeared to Paul, he had already ascended having his glorious body, having been resurrected. Okay, and now we are his body, and he is our head. We follow him according to his heavenly ministry. We have a position in heavenly places, not an earthly position in an earthly kingdom. And that's why his ministry is to Israel. That's why Paul says we don't know Christ after the flesh anymore. That's not for us. Okay, we follow him according to his heavenly ministry. So, when it says according to the flesh there in Romans 1, it's speaking to his earthly ministry, who he was in the flesh, and then verse 4, it says, declared to be the Son of God with power. And this power is the resurrection. At the end of verse 4, it says, by the resurrection from the dead. So he was declared to be the Son of God by power. So you think about when he came to his earthly ministry, he was doing all these miracles, you know, healing the blind, raising the dead, uh, multiplying the loaves and the fishes, calming the sea, all these miracles he was doing. But the greatest miracle he did was his resurrection. That was the one that showed he was truly the Son of God. Okay? And he tells, I didn't write down the verse, but in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Pharisees asked for a sign, and he says, the only sign you'll have is the sign of Jonah. Right? He was three days and three nights in the well of the belly. That's the sign you'll have that I'm the Son of God. And he was speaking of his resurrection. So that's what he's saying here concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, uh, declared to be the Son of God with power. That's the power of resurrection. Earlier we read Acts 2 there, where it talks about Peter talking about how he had resurrected. So we won't go back and reread it. You can go to Philippians 3.10. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings be made conformable unto his death. So there again, Paul wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Okay, That resurrection power is what showed that Christ was truly the Son of God. And then in back to Romans 1, verse 4, it says, According to the Spirit of holiness. According to the Spirit, I believe, speaks to his resurrected body. Okay. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45, where it speaks of this whole chapter's on resurrection, it says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. The last Adam is Christ. When he resurrected, he was a quickening spirit. Right? He had that uh, spiritual body. And he was raised by his power, by the spirit of holiness. The spirit of holiness, I also think, speaks to his deity as God, his holiness as God. Okay, God is holy. Christ was holy. Exodus 28, 36 through 38. This is uh, given rules for the priests there in the Old Testament. It says, And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold, engrave upon it like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead, that they may be accepted before the Lord. So when Aaron, the priest, had to go before the Lord and perform these sacrifices 
for the forgiveness of Israel's sins, he had to wear on this mitre, on his forehead, a signet or an inscription in that that said, Holiness to the Lord. And I think that was like saying, Lord, you're holy, you're true, you're righteous. You promised you would forgive us if we did this. And so it was always before them showing that you're holy, Lord, remind the Lord. You're holy, don't kill me, right? I'm doing what you said. But God is holy, holiness to the Lord. Um, Exodus. That was Exodus 28. Go to Psalms 89.35. It says, Once I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. So he swears by his holiness. God is holy. He can swear by his holiness because that's who he is. I believe that is his main attribute, his main character. It's not love. It's holiness. Okay, and because he's holy, he can forgive sinners by grace because of the sacrifice he provided. And he can also judge sinners that reject them. Right? Holiness is not love and acceptance. Holiness is righteousness, which is love based on Christ's righteousness or judgment based on rejection of that. Right? If God was just love, he wouldn't judge people. Right? But he's holiness. That is his main characteristic. And from that, he can both love and judge. But I believe that's what this verse is talking about. In Romans 1, verse 4, he was declared to be the Son of God by his power, his resurrection power, by that spirit of holiness. Speaking of him being a quickened spirit, being God in the flesh. Okay? God is holy just as Christ is holy because Christ is God. Um, Also, you can contrast um, verse 4 with verse 3. Verse 3 was speaking of Christ born according to the flesh of the seed of David. Verse 4 speaks of him being declared the Son of God with the spirit of holiness and resurrection power. So one speaks to his human nature. The other speaks to his spiritual nature. So I believe you can make that contrast there. He was both God and man uh, in the flesh. And so you have that contrast there between verse 4 and verse 3. Some would say that Paul's gospel here is where it says here, he prophesied, promised to four by his prophets in the Holy Scripture, and he gives it concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Um, some people say that Paul preached two gospels in his ministry. People that believe the church started after Acts 28. They think early in Paul's ministry, he ministered the kingdom. Later in the ministry, the mystery was revealed, and he preached a different gospel. So they say in Romans 1, he's preaching the kingdom gospel. It's not till Romans 16, 25 that he's preaching the mystery. And so if you turn to Romans 16, 25, I just say that again because that verse 2 through 4, he's kind of explaining the gospel he preached, how it's in prophecy, the things about the gospel that he's preaching. They say, well, see, here he is preaching a gospel in prophecy. It's not till later in his ministry that he preaches the mystery gospel. But if you notice verse 24, it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So they say Paul originally ended his epistle there and sent it to Rome. And then after the revelation of the mystery was revealed, this book of Romans is a transition between the kingdom and the mystery. And so when he gets to Rome, when you read the book of Acts, he does finally get to Rome in bonds. He gets this epistle and he writes the last two verses. That's why you have amen in verse 24 and amen in verse 27. They say he adds the part of now to him that was power established you according to my gospel. So they say that my gospel, when he says that, it's the gospel of the mystery. In verse 1, the gospel of God is the gospel of the kingdom, things that were promised before. Okay, so that's where they come from. But just looking at this, if you look at verse 20 here, you see the word amen there. So it's not verse 24 and verse 27. He says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Then he continues, Timotheus, my work fellow, and Lucius. He gives some more commendations. And at the end of verse 24, he says, Amen. And then he gives this last phrase, Now to him that has the power to establish you. And at the end of that, he says, Amen. They never say anything about verse 20, him saying, Amen. So they're trying to say he cut it off at verse 24 because of that word, Amen. But it's also there in verse 20. Okay, I think he's just giving these commendations. He says, amen. He gives some more commendations to the people that I believe are with him. Going back to our introduction, where you have uh, Timothy, Lucius, Jason, Gaius, 
some of those people that are mentioned in Acts 20, when I believe he wrote the epistle. So I think he gives them commendations and then says amen again and then gives a final statement. Like, to him, that is the power of establishing according to this because he's finished his commendations and says amen again. I don't believe he added it later in his life at the end of the book of Acts. But anyways, just looking at a few things here. Um, in verse 5, actually verse 4, he says, by the res- resurrection of the dead, in verse 25, he says, this is, powers him to establish you according to my gospel and preaching Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began. If you go to 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul uses something very similar to what he says in Romans 1, 3, and 4, and Romans 16.25. He uses them together in 2 Timothy, and the Acts 28ers say 2 Timothy was written after Acts 28, so he would have known the mystery by then. If you look at uh, 2 Timothy 2.8, it says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David, which sounds like the gospel of God, what they call the kingdom gospel, was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Well, there he uses my gospel. So it sounds like it's all one gospel to me because of those words that they try to say are different. So I just wanted to point that out. Also, if you look at Romans 1.5, he says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. He also uses that for obedience to the faith in Romans 16.26, which is those last two verses that they say were added later. So again, it all sounds like it fits together to me that he's preaching one gospel. Okay, Just because he says it was a foreprophesied in the scripture, he doesn't say the mystery. He's talking about the things concerning Jesus Christ that he's preaching, the gospel. Okay, So I just want that to be clear because people will say, well, he's preaching prophecy here. He's preaching a different gospel. It wasn't until later in his ministry that he had the mystery and preached the mystery. As they say, it's only the epistles he wrote after Acts 28, which nobody knows which ones those actually are because we don't have the actual dates. So it's a very shaky system to uh, put your faith on. Yeah, it's a lot of outside the Bible facts that they try to point to to say Paul didn't know the mystery until after Acts 28. But nevertheless, just wanted to throw that in there. Uh, Verse 5, it says, By whom we have received grace and apostleship. So notice there, there's a colon at the end of verse 4, not a period. And then verse 5, he's continuing his sentence. By whom we have received grace and apostleship. So the same Christ that he's preaching, that was promised to four in the scripture, is the one that gave him grace and apostleship. Okay, his authority comes from Jesus Christ. So he's making that point here. It's by him, that Christ of scripture, the one prophesied, the one promised, is the one by whom we have received grace and apostleship. For obedience... To the faith. So again, some people say obedience to the faith is works. Or you have to do some sort of obedience. And again, these are people that teach that you have to keep some of the law and things like this. They try to make it works. It's obedience to the faith. If there's no works, your faith is vain. That's what James teaches. Okay, and these are people that don't rightly divide. They think James is written to the church. Right, faith without works is dead. They say that's what obedience to the faith means. You put your faith in Christ and then you obey what he has said. And that's how you know you're saved. Well, that's works for salvation. Okay, that's not what it's saying here. It's simply belief. Obedience to the faith is belief. Romans 6, 17. Paul says, But God be think that ye were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. So you obey from the heart that form of doctrine. So obedience of the faith is obedience to the doctrine. Right? Believing the doctrine is all that that means. It's to him that believeth. Right? Not to him that worketh. Paul clearly says this in the book of Romans. But it's not works. It's not what some people try to say. This obedience of the faith is faith without works is dead. You have to have works to show your faith. That's not what obedience of the faith is. Romans 6.17, it's you obeyed the doctrine, right? Believing it that you were uh, that you received and heard. That's what obedience of the faith is. It's believing it. Um, and of course, he says, among all nations for his name. Among all nations, that word nations in your Bible means Gentiles, right? Because most of the Bible is to Jews, so Gentiles means the rest of the nations. So Paul says he's preaching this among all nations, among Gentiles, not just Jews, but all nations. It's also interesting that Paul is the one that we see going to all nations. Um, Galatians 2.9 
you have him meeting with Peter, James, and John. It says, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen, and they into the circumcision. Circumcision is just Jews, okay? The heathen is everybody else. It's even uncircumcised Jews, those that rejected it. Okay, those would be in the heathen. So you see Paul's the one going to the nations. He's going to the world. Peter, James, and John, they're saying, well, we're just going to Jews, circumcised Jews. Um, Colossians 1, 6 says, which is coming to you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. And he's speaking of uh, the word of truth of the gospel in verse 5, is which what is coming to you as it is in all the world. So Paul says, it's coming to you as it is in all the world. This message that I preached, I've preached it in all the world. Paul is the one that went to the world, not the twelve apostles. To which my question is, what happened? Because in Mark 16, 15, what was the great commission that we always hear? Who was that given to? Who was God speaking to there? He was speaking to the 12 apostles. Paul wasn't there. He wasn't saved yet. He said, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Now, of course, that's the kingdom gospel. The mystery was not revealed, right? The gospel of grace was not given yet. But why did they stop? Would be my question. If the 12 apostles were given that great commission, that's what we're supposed to do today. Why are they telling Paul, you go do that now, and we're just going to these few people here? Be a question that people should answer. In uh, Acts 8 1, when Paul is Saul and persecuting the church, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Why? And then also, if you look at, oh, we already read Galatians 2.9. It's reasonable to ask what happened here, right? Why did the apostles let Paul go to the world and they stay in Jerusalem ministering to the circumcision when they were the ones given the Great Commission whereby we are supposedly supposed to obey? Right? That'd be like me saying, well, you know what? It's up to other people to go and preach the gospel to the world. It's not my responsibility. I'm staying here in my hometown. And what would they say to me? Well, no, it's your job too, right? It's given to everybody. Okay, it wasn't. It was given specifically to the 12 apostles to preach the kingdom, to Jerusalem first. Um, if you go and contrast Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, Acts 1, John 20, these are all part of that Great Commission. Okay, these are all times in Jesus' ministry, right? They're all parallel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they all contain a part of this so-called Great Commission given to the 12 apostles to preach this kingdom to Jerusalem first, then Judea, then Samaria, then the uttermost parts of the earth. Okay, that's what it says in Acts 1.8. And that's why they stayed in Jerusalem, because they did not yet receive it. The Jews had to receive the kingdom in Jerusalem first before it could be preached to the Gentiles. And when they rejected it, right, Peter said, well, we can't go to the Gentiles yet because the Jews ain't accepted it yet. And when they perceived that Paul had this message of grace, that's when they said, okay, clearly you have a message to go to the rest of the world. We're just going to stay here and minister to the ones that we minister to, to the circumcision. Okay, so that's why you see the 12 apostles not going to the world because, again, God's changing his ministry. He's revealed the mystery now. Israel's rejected it. They've fallen. They're set aside. The kingdom's not coming, right? The Jews have rejected it. So God has sent Paul to go to the nations. So I think that's interesting here. Paul says here he's the one with apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations. It's him, the one going to the nations, not the 12 apostles. In verse 6, he says, Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ? So those in Rome that are saved, they're also called of Jesus Christ. This is not election, as some people say. Calling means election, choosing. Okay, it does not always mean election or chosen. Jesus says in his earthly ministry, Many are called, but few are chosen. So it can't mean chosen, or else Jesus would be saying, Many are chosen, but few are chosen. <laughs> Wouldn't make sense. He says, many are called, few are chosen. They're two different things. 
We are called by Christ and his gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14. He says, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says he called you by our gospel. Okay, when you hear the gospel, that's God calling you to salvation, right? You can't be saved without hearing the gospel. Romans uh, 10.17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You can't have faith in the gospel if you haven't heard it. Okay? Calvinism would say that's not true because God can elect you to salvation, regardless of whether or not you've heard the gospel. Romans 10.17 says, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. You can't have faith in something that you've never heard, right? So you're called by the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says that. Also in Galatians 1.6, he says, I marvel that you are so soon removed from the gospel about whereby you were called. So he says, you're removed from that gospel you were called. You're going back to the law. You're removed from the gospel of grace. That's where you were called by, right? That's what you were saved by, by the gospel. So they're called by the gospel. They're called by Jesus Christ. And in verse 7, it says they're called to be saints. Um, they're called by Jesus Christ, and they're called to be saints. A saints means set apart, okay? Uh, you're set apart as God's possession. He's called you. He saved you. You're set apart. You're called to be a saint. Um, some people would have you believe that sainthood is a position you have to come to by being a certain righteous person, right? I think the Catholics do this. You have to be deemed a saint by the elders or whatever. They have to deem you worthy enough to be a saint. If you're saved, you're called to be a saint. You are a saint in Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 2. Paul says, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified, them that are set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So he says those in Corinth are called to be saints. And we know that Corinth was a very carnal church, Right? But they're still called to be saints because they're saved. They're in Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. says, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God. Right? You're called to be a saint, and you're bought with a price. Right? Christ has bought you with a price, with his blood and his resurrection. He has set you apart. He's paid that price to possess you as his uh, prized possession, right? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so another way you could say uh, called to be saints is your saints by calling, right? by your calling of Jesus Christ, of the gospel. Um, it's what God has called you to through the gospel. He's called you to be saints. It's not something you achieve, okay? It's something that you're called to by the gospel of Christ, by his grace. Um. Going back to Romans 1, so you deal with their calling there. It's not something that you are deemed by your righteousness. It's by grace. You're called to be saints through the gospel. Um, to all that be in Rome. So his audience is all those in Rome, both Jew and Gentiles. And as you study through the epistle, you see that there is a mixed group of Jew and Gentile here. In Romans 2.17, he says, Behold, thou art called a Jew, and restest in the law, and makest thy boast of God. So Romans 2.17, he's addressing a Jew or the Jews there. He says, Behold, thou art called a Jew. Well, that's not me as a Gentile. I'm not called a Jew. So in that section, he's addressing the Jews. In Romans 11, uh, verse 13, he says, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. So right there, he's speaking to Gentiles. So there's a mixed audience uh, there in Rome. But he's writing to both. He says to all that be in Rome. So whether Jew or Gentile, Paul is writing to them. And then also in 1 Corinthians 14, not 1 Corinthians, Romans 14, sorry. He deals with uh, the weak and the strong. In verse 1 it says, Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations. In verse 10, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In this section he's dealing with foods and holy days and some of y'all want to keep them and the others don't. He says you don't have to. 
Okay, but he's dealing with that mixed audience there. The Jews are saying we can't eat these meats. Gentiles are saying all meats are acceptable to God. And so he's dealing with that mixed audience. No doubt there was some controversy there between the two. And Paul has to deal with some of those issues. But that's his audience. It's all those in Rome, both Jews and Gentiles. Uh, beloved of God. Uh, they're beloved of God because they're in Christ, who is the beloved son. Uh, Matthew 3.17, when Christ is baptized, the Spirit sends on him like a dove, and it says a voice comes from heaven saying, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When Christ is on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, 15, he says the same thing to Peter, James, and John there. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So all throughout Jesus' ministry, you see him being called of God, my beloved Son. Right? Christ is the beloved Son. And so if you are in Christ, that makes you part of the beloved. Right? Because you're in Christ. He's the beloved, and you're part of that beloved in Christ. Therefore, you're beloved of God. Ephesians 1.6 says, To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. You are accepted in the beloved by Christ, by his grace. Um, Christ is the one that loved you and died for you. Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love as Christ also have loved us and have given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So you walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Uh, Romans 5, 8, God committed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? He committed his love to us by dying for us on the cross. So they're beloved of God because they are in Christ, who is the beloved Son. They've been made accepted into the beloved by grace. And then he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this grace and peace to you is Paul's salutation. He writes it in all his epistles in the introductions. The only difference is it's the word mercy is added in 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. So he says, grace, mercy, and peace to you, Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace to Titus. So that's the only difference there. But this grace and peace is part of his salutation, and he gives it in all his epistles. I believe it speaks to how God is operating today. He can say grace and peace to you from God because God's offering grace and peace in this dispensation. He's not offering wrath, judgment, or war. That's future when he comes to set up his kingdom. He's offering grace and peace. Um, so I think that's important there to note. And that's why Paul, I believe, says that in all his epistles. Grace and peace to you. It's interesting. Peter's and John, they use something similar to this, but they'll be like, grace and peace multiply, or grace be with you. Paul here says, grace and peace from God the Father to you. So it's offered to you from God, this grace and peace, because that's how God is operating, operating today. He's operating by grace. So any thoughts or questions on Paul's introduction here? I hope that was clear, dealing with the gospel he preached, how it's not all prophesied, right? The death and resurrection was prophesied. That is our gospel. But there's a mystery aspect to that that was not prophesied. And he'll get into that in chapters 3, 4, and 5.